This show is produced by the Brennis Female Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu Podcast. Ubuntu is known as Africa's gift to the world. It's the philosophy that highlights our common humanity and the idea that we are all interconnected. Social justice is in my genes, with my family being very active in the fight to end apartheid, and my grandfather, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, heading up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This show is about what we can learn from the human experience when we realize we are interconnected and acknowledge each other's point of view. The Ubuntu way of life has brought my life so much value and learning, and I hope it can bring you the same. If you liked today's episode, hit subscribe, give the show a review, and join me as I talk to amazingly inspiring guests who are on a similar journey, fighting for justice and learning along the way. Today, I'm speaking with Jason Carter. He's a lawyer, a politician, a Peace Corps alum, and he also happens to be the grandson of President Jimmy Carter. Jason has a very special connection to Ubuntu, having served in the Peace Corps in South Africa and written a book about his time there called Power Lines. He was elected to the Georgia State Senate in 2010 and 2012 and ran for governor in 2014. He is currently a partner at a law firm here in my home of Atlanta and is the chair of the board of trustees for the Carter Center. What I wanted to start with is, you know, we've we've had we've had lunch and we've had discussions. And one thing I think we both connected on is is we're clearly been the the grandchildren of. Um, but I think there's so much more to someone besides that. So could you tell us, you know, give us a brief description of who you are and what what gets left out sometimes when people focus on you being the grandson of President Jimmy Carter? Sure. So, I mean, and, and, and first of all, I appreciate that connection, right? I mean, there's there's not that many people like Desmond Tutu in the history of the world. Uh, and, I, I, you know, there's not that many people like Jimmy Carter either. And so I, I do think it's a unique situation. I, I think for me, um, you know, the way I describe this most of the time fits right in with the work that you're doing with, with Ubuntu and, and sort of bringing it into everyday life. I, I tell people that the most influential grandparent uh, that I've ever had um, was a woman named Gogo that I rented a room from in the Peace Corps on the Swaziland border, three and a half hours east of Johannesburg. And, you know, she was born in a, in, you know, segregated apartheid South Africa and lived her entire life constrained by apartheid. And, and still by the time I got there was such an incredible community leader that, that, that I think everybody, and I can talk more about her, but I think everybody in my family, including my grandparents, would know uh, that would agree that she is the most uh, successful grandparent that I've had. Um, but really, to me, uh, a lot of that discussion, and, and I'm sure this is true for your grandfather too, we see those folks as just regular people, right? They've done amazing things. But my grandparents, they're just country people from Georgia who had these great experiences and lived out their principles in a way that uh, was remarkable and inspirational. But, but they're no, you know, they're no different than any other grandparents anybody else has ever had, probably, at least in some ways. I mean, that's what I say to people all the time. You know, someone asked me, what's it like having your grandfather as your grandfather? And I'm like, what is it like having your grandfather as your grandfather? <laughs> I always say, people ask me, people say, is it weird that your grandfather was president? And I say, I don't know. I mean, it's always been. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you otherwise. <laughs> um, okay, so following on from that, have you you know, ever felt a burden of responsibility with that? Um, 
you know, people who want to be close to you or, or want to befriend you because of that connection. And in the same light, has that opened doors for you? And how do you deal with that? Sure. Well, there's no doubt that it opened doors for me, right? I mean, you know, the the, the privilege associated with having your grandfather be president of the United States is, you know, un, unparalleled in a lot of ways, right? Not only am I, you know, a relatively wealthy white guy in America, but I have these other connections to, to power and other things that are sort of un, unseverable, right? I'll always have those connections. Um, but, you know, it, it, um, and I've had people, you know, there's no doubt. I mean, when I was in politics, when I was in the state Senate, uh, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses, but there's no doubt that politically it's a it's a huge benefit. There's people when they meet me, they remember me. They remember that they met Jimmy Carter's grandson uh, for better, or for worse. Right. The people who thought I was a jerk are like, I remember that guy really well. He was a jerk. <laughs> and the, the people who thought that I was impressive, you know, remember me for that reason, too. So I, I think that, you know, being memorable, uh, having those um, connections to power that are sort of un unseverable. Those are the ways in which it's really impacted me. But I think ultimately, like everybody else, uh, and I'm sure this is true for you, you know, you build relationships with anybody the way that you build relationships and, and those are real or they're fake. <laughs> and, you know, there's some of them have been fake in my life and some of them ha have been real. And I think just like everybody else, you, you figure out how to how to approach those things and the real human connections that you have are the ones that last. Absolutely. What is something that, you know, people are surprised to learn about you? Um, you know, maybe not on this program and maybe not for you, but my, my Zulu is really good. Like maybe better than. Oh, you we will. We will get into that. Don't you worry. We will get into that. Definitely my best party trick. And certainly, you know, when people see me out, uh, you know, <laughs> I've got some camouflage hunting hat on or something like that. And, and my, uh, uh, some, civil rights shirt. People are always like, I'm not sure I get exactly who you are, but I think it's a, it's an important thing, but that, 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 that Zulu bit is, is a big deal. I think I, I'm also just, you know, when I was in, uh, I think people have this expectation of, of my family that, you know, it's like this puritanical group and, and uh, it's just not at all. Even my grandparents, you know, they have, they've, they've had for 55 years, they've had Bloody Marys and hot dogs at, for lunch on every Saturday. You know what I mean? And I just think people, uh, People are surprised sometimes to find out that we're a lot more uh, a lot more fun than uh, than the, the Jimmy Carter they think they know. <laughs> a lot more fun and yeah, and human. Um, you you've mentioned your Zulu and you know time in South Africa, so I think I should ask about the t the time you spent in the Peace Corps in South Africa and what similarities you saw from you know the the racial issues there to, I guess, right now in the U.S. and, and where there's some striking differences? So I, I think, you know, being somebody, as I said before, who's a white privileged guy from the South in the United States, um, when I went to the Peace Corps, you know, Mandela was still the president in, in South Africa. It was this incredible moment in that country's history. Um, but, you know, I, I was uncomfortable in many ways sort of talking about race at home in the United States. And so it was much easier for me uh, to really dive into the issues in South Africa um, and, and, and sort of see it uh, maybe for the first time, but, but, but in, in a new way. Obviously, I was the only white person for 30 miles where I lived. Right. And so people, little kids who'd never touched a white person's arm, you know, the preschoolers would come up and, and, you know, just to see what it felt like, you know, touching and talking and having, you know, being the first white person in probably 500 homes. 
you know, having that racially conscious experience every single day while I was there uh, really opened up my eyes in one way on a personal level. And then on a broader political level, you know, uh, the, the, the post-apartheid residue that is so thick, um, you know, in, in the United States, we sort of felt like, at least for a long time in my generation, and, and I'm 45 years old, for a long time in my generation, we felt like we sort of missed the civil rights movement, right? Like we came on the heels, the, the Voting Rights Act was passed, you know, we, we came on the heels of those things and didn't get to experience it firsthand. And being in South Africa in the late 90s, I was able to be, so it was so much more um, sort of urgently present that they had just come through this process and were still struggling in a much more real way at that time uh, than we were in the United States back then. Uh, that it was remarkably eye-opening for me to watch people struggle with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and other ways that they were confronting their past. Um, and, and so to be a part of that was remarkable. And I think the last thing that's really relevant for this moment is being able to talk about what happened in South Africa, being able to watch them confront some of these things, it uh, allowed me to look back at my country with new eyes. And we have had a very terrible uh, and almost completely um, dysfunctional race discussion in this country, in the United States, that has kept all of these issues sort of pent up or put in the closet or tucked away in ways that are beginning maybe in 2020 to, to come to the forefront again. But it just demonstrates that we're, we are we may be quote ahead of South Africa from a time standpoint, but we're you know we're certainly not ahead in any way with respect to whether we've engaged in the discussions that we need to have. And I I know that you won the Stuart Eisenstadt Award as a young lawyer for your work on voting rights, and so you know connecting South Africa to the U.S. Yeah. in in this election year. What are your thoughts on where we are as a country with our voting rights? Right. So, I mean, I'll say this, like one of the most remarkable experiences that I had in the Peace Corps is I was there for the, for the election of the second black president of South Africa. Right. Mandela's term was coming to an end uh, and folks were heading to the polls to, to sort of look to the future. And, you know, what I realized as I sat there on Election Day, obviously in South Africa, I couldn't vote. I just was watching the people in my community. And I think there were something like 1,200, 1,200 saved voters that were registered to vote in, in the precinct at the little high school where I, in the tiny little village where I live. And of those 1,200 people, like 1,155 came and voted. Right? And they think that those 45 other people, you know, had some of them had passed away. I mean, these were like, there was a tiny group that didn't show up. And the whole day, I mean, there were people bringing their grandmother, you know, in wheelbarrows to come vote. And, and it was just this celebration of democracy, this celebration of freedom and, and having a voice and, and all of this that really made me realize just how, how exhilarating you know, a, a democracy can be for people who don't take it for granted. And in this country, we have taken it for granted so bad. And I think you know, it's almost like you know, that election was a celebration and our elections just seem sad. You know, and, and we're trying to figure out how we can kind of recapture or rekindle uh, that sort of faith in the value of our common purpose that underlies democracy. And so, you know, that's really what Ubuntu means to me. It's this understanding of, of, of you know, faith in the value of our commonness 
um, that, that in this country we, we really got to deal with. And, you know, the voting rights standpoint, the people who want fewer people to vote, to me, that's just as, as undemocratic as, as it gets. You know, the, the more you can pour into uh, and the more life and humanity you can plug into your democracy, uh, the better it is, uh, you know, in my view. And, and certainly that 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 has played out across time. But we, we've got a sick democracy in this country in a lot of ways. And, you know, people are confronting it in, in different ways. Well, you mentioned Ubuntu in there, so that sort of leads me into what, you know, what was your first experience learning about it, but then through the rest of your life, what has been your your journey with it? And I know that you've shared it, so maybe tell us how you share it with others. Yeah, sure. So I, I appreciate this, and I love what you're doing, and I think you're exactly the right person for it because, you know, I, I learned how to talk about it and how to, how, to, how to think about it a little bit in Zulu, uh, but really Desmond Tutu's words, your grandfather's words are the ones that, that that put it into a way that I can articulate to others. And, you know, the way I learned it is is in, in Zulu, which is very similar to Kosa and the other uh, Nguni languages is, is, you know, Umuntu, Ubuntu, Nabantu, really. And what that means is a person is a person through other people mm-hmm. and in connection and in relation to those other people. And, you know, we've grown up sort of in the West uh, sort of the European or American ideals of like this rugged individualism and the idea that we're fundamentally connected, the idea that we're fundamentally bound up in the same garment of humanity is the way that Martin Luther King talks about it. It's the way that Desmond Tutu talks about it. And it's the way I feel in my heart when I look out at who I am. I don't feel like, I, yes, I'm an individual. Yes, I have responsibilities, but fundamentally I'm connected. I'm connected to other people and especially in this moment when so many of the human connections have been pushed to the sides because of the pandemic and people are spending more and more time isolated, Mm -hmm. that's when I think we've all really realized just how fundamentally social and how fundamentally connected we are. Um, And I've experienced it in a a, a ton of ways and I, I can, I can talk forever about it or I can answer a specific question or uh, you can just say, keep going. (laughs) You could keep going. I just, I, I wonder if there, you know, as a specific example of in South Africa, where you 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 felt you experienced it, whether it was the Goko there, or um, or coming back to the states and saying, oh, this like this was a moment of someone showing Ubuntu, even if they didn't know that they were doing that. So I, there's a couple of stories that are just amazing to me uh, that happened to me in South Africa that are just sort of examples of of this message, and you know the way. Um, just for example, we would we would have dinner every night in the little in the in the house. I rented a room from his family, and Gogo was truly this incredible woman. And she, uh, like I said, lived her life constrained by apartheid. And in 1975, got dropped off in the middle of nowhere, uh, and told it was her homeland, forcibly removed by the government. And um, by the time I got there, you know, 23 years later, she was the the president of the school governing body. She had a women's gardening project that had gotten an award from the United Nations. She ran a preschool that taught all these kids English, fed them three times a day, math. I mean, and for a lot of those kids, the only time they ate, I mean, you know, she ran the, the, the post office. She was the postmaster in this little town. I mean, she was literally everything in this town. Um, but one of the things that we would do at night is we would have dinner. And we would never know who was going to show up because we would sit down in this kitchen and there'd be me and and Boni Bonisile, who was a, a woman that, that was her uh, niece, and then three little girls that lived in the house that were 10, 4, and 2. And so 
But every night, one or two other people would just show up and sit down. And we'd be like, oh, hey, Rabi, come on in. You know, hey, hey, Mtunzi, uh, um, come on in. And they would just sit down. They wouldn't say anything. It wasn't pity. It wasn't anything else. But you knew, I knew eventually that people were like, hey, we don't have enough to eat tonight. You should go over to, to Mom Zugulu's house. And so, or, or Mom Sibanyoni's house. And so they would just show up. And it was not even, it, there was no pity. There was no shame. It was just, hey, we've got food. They're hungry. This is how we operate. And, and, you know, there were so many of those types of events. It's remarkable. Let me tell another one real quick. Please do. Okay. So uh, I worked in schools and there was uh, my, my supervisor was the principal of the elementary school in my town. And, and in this sort of post-apartheid world, they were uh, people that were pro black professionals were sort of moving into different uh, parts, uh, literally different locations uh, within the, the, the various apartheid standard living. Mm -hmm. And so this woman who was a principal, well-paid, actually moved into a nice house in what was an Indian location, right? Apartheid had its four different compartments. One of them was Indians, one colored, one's black, one's white. And the, the, the jobs that had previously been reserved and the locations that had been reserved for Indians had been nicer in theory, uh, materially at least, than the um, than black locations. And so she moved into Indian Township and she wanted me to come see her house. And so I get down there and I was like, hey, this is awesome. And then there was a, an old man sitting out in the front, like working on a car. And I said, who's that? She said, oh, that's Mkulu, which just means grandfather. I said, oh, like, where'd he come from? She said, he's a godsend. And I said, what does that mean? Because a lot of times you know, English gets used in different ways by people who speak different ways. And so I said, what's a godsend? And she said, well, the day we moved into this house, he came and knocked on the door and he said, I'm hungry. I need some food. And I figured God had sent him. This is what she told me because I had this new house. So I invited him in. And I was like, when was that? She said it was two months ago. And he'd been living in the house with them eating at their table, being a part of their life that whole time. I mean, that is just, that blows your mind. And, uh, but he, but, but that's the way that they took him in. And that's not a check written to charity. Mm -hmm. That's like a life that's you feel is integrated with others. And I'm not saying you have to do that in order to like live in the spirit of Ubuntu, but there are times when uh, people's willingness to see the humanity in others is just incredible. Do you have any sort of, you know, lessons that you've gathered from COVID that you could share with my listeners on, on how we can show Ubuntu to people? Because even though we are, you know, isolated, we're not necessarily disconnected. Yeah, I, I just think that sort of fundamentally where we are in the world right now is to, to, to begin the process of, of just, we crave human connection. We thirst for human connection and everybody does. And, you know, when we think about what we're doing for others, for me, when, when my family, my children, when we want to do something for others, you know, one way to do that. And, and this is I'm not being critical of philanthropy in, in general, but sometimes, you know, folks will have a big fundraiser and they'll go with their own friends and they'll see the same people that they always see and they'll write a check. Mm -hmm. And that's great. And, and, and charities need checks. Um, uh, but but to go and to do something where you're standing there recognizing the humanity of somebody who you might not normally recognize, who, who you don't feel like you have a human connection with, but to seek it out uh, is incredible. And, and, it, and it really, I think, drives home the idea of why and how we can recognize that connectedness 
Um, and so there's a lot of different ways for people to be to, to, to see human connection without, you know, actually physically touching somebody or without, you know, being there. But to me, it's, it's, it's looking for ways to participate in community programs, looking for ways to, to go and, and be places. Again, even if you're just uh, having fun, you know, my son and I went to the Beltline here in Atlanta, which is just an outdoor space. Um, in part because when you get down there, you get to see and be around all kinds of different people who are all craving being outdoors and seeing other people, you know, and it just helps, I think, to recognize that that kernel of humanity that everybody has. And, and, it, and it really is a salve, at least for me, um, for these these tough, tough times where so many of the things that used to make me so happy, I don't do anymore. <laughs> you know, oh, COVID. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. I mentioned, I think that we had lunch before COVID and mm -hmm. we were speaking and I don't know if you noticed, but you said something that sort of like took me back because I had, I had said something about, oh, we really need your grandfather or something. And you, you basically responded, you know, it's time for our grandparents to rest and it's time for the next generation, AKA us to lead. What does that look like to you? I, I think I agree with you, but when you first said it, I was like, oh no, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> well, I got two, I got two, I got one thing to tell you. Number one, you are ready for this. <laughs> what we're doing right now is a great example. I mean, you know, I think one of the crowning achievements of your grandfather's uh, career, and you may disagree and he may disagree, but the way I've experienced him. Uh, is that 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 Truth and Reconciliation Commission that he chaired that set the stage and set an example for so many others about um, how to have conversations? You know, that's what you're doing. You're having conversations right now, and it may not be on that same level, or it may, but it may get there. And I think that that dialogue is 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 exactly what we need to be doing. So you're doing it. Um, for me, in my little personal life. Um, you know, my grandparents are really are retired uh, from the Carter Center. And so what that means for us is that we are literally taking an organization that they used to deal with on a daily basis and transferring from sort of a founder led organization into a founder inspired organization mm -hmm. where we look at their principles and put them into action in a new way. And I think that idea, you know, this year, you know, in, in a month, basically, you know, at least here in my town of Atlanta, you know, we lost Joseph Lowry and C.T. Vivian and, and John Lewis in a few weeks. And those guys were the leaders uh, of the civil rights movement in many, many ways. And Absolutely. so, right. And, and that group, we're, we are going to have to move from being led by those people uh, to being inspired by those people and doing what's next in our own lives. And I think I think folks are ready. I mean, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that the leaders of the civil rights movement now are young, young people younger than me, uh, maybe even younger than you, who are who are leading from from the front of, of a host of different ways, right? And we've got so many tools and so many different communication options um, that are out there to, to do it that I, I have every faith that we can, but there's no doubt that it's us now. Oof. Well, you are the chair of the of the board of the Carter Center, um, and I, you know, love the motto: waging peace, fighting disease, building hope. What has that experience been like for you, moving from the founder-led to the founder-inspired model? Yeah, so I, I think a couple of things. I mean, really, um, there's there's two ways I would describe what the Carter Center does. One is really, uh, it's a human rights organization, um, and it's but it defines human rights really broadly. 
uh, the same way that the concept of Ubuntu defines humanity broadly to include connections with others. Mm-hmm. We basically look at that as a human right, right? The human right is, um, is, is the right to be free from preventable disease. It's the right to be free from conflict. It's the right, yes, to live in a community where you get to vote and have a say in your own life and to be free from, from um, you know, police brutality and, and other things that we think of as rights. Uh, but we define it really broadly. And that's, that's where we come from. And I think the other way in which the founders really inspired us is they come from this tiny town. I mean, 600 people, middle of nowhere, you know, didn't have shoes until they went to school when they were five, six, uh, you know, and when they look at a tiny village in Africa, for example, in Eastern Mali, uh, where there's 500 people that live there, they don't look at that place as a place to send pity. They look at that as a place that, man, there's going to be folks there that we can partner with because I know people from these tiny little villages in the middle of nowhere want to make a difference in their community, can make a difference in their community, and can and can change the world. And, and that that has been the model that the Carter Center has used to eradicate disease, to, to drive human rights changes, and to do a lot of other stuff. And I think it comes back to that idea that if you respect people's humanity, um, whether they're from a tiny little town, whether they're really poor or not, um, you respect their power to make change. And it's, uh, it's a pretty incredible thing. Who have been the people besides these two founders that you just spoke of who have inspired you? Um, you know, I think, again, I think, I think Gogo in South Africa, um, her name is Selena Sibanyoni. Um, she is one of those people who did not have the benefits and the privileges that I had but who took and understood her own power to transform her community so well that that she just showed me sort of, you know, one question that I would always ask is what would she have done if she'd been Jimmy Carter's grandson or if she'd been Desmond Tutu's granddaughter, right? Uh, and, and so those, that is an inspir- inspiration to me uh, greatly. Um, I think that, you know, in this town and, and in the civil rights heritage that we all share here, um, that group of people who put themselves on the line and and uh, saw a wrong and decided to make it right uh, in the most respectful way possible with the nonviolent change and the and the understanding that only that that you know hate can't drive out hate. Um, that's a real inspiration to me. But 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 I think ultimately, I mean, you know, the way that the Carter Center eradicated guinea worm disease is by teaching people in every single little village in Nigeria, every single little village in Ghana and in, and in Niger and Chad and South Sudan and uh, you know Uganda and uh, Ethiopia. The people who eradicated guinea worm disease were individuals in those little communities. And you know that is an incredible achievement that was carried out by just regular people. And the, 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 I think anybody can be an inspiration if they recognize their own power to make change. Do you have a favorite saying in Zulu besides umtu gumtu gabantu? Anything else that you like to pull out at parties? I mean, here's what I pull out at parties is, is you know, the total nonsense that just has lots of clicks in it, right? Like, you know, my frog would like some traditional beer. Let's talk about Samis. So I'm from Boti. But no, I mean, you know, we, I have tons of songs I love. I still listen to a bunch of that old, you know, Brenda Fossey and all these things that, um, that were popular back in the old days in South Africa. But I'll, I'll tell you the thing that, that really drives me, the best saying, the thing from South Africa that I carry with me, that I believe is true, that I think you are carrying forward, 
is I, is Steve Biko in, in one of his writings um, talked about how the Western world had done an incredible job of giving the world a military and industrial face and had developed a huge amount of wealth and that he felt like, and he said, quote, I'm going to try to quote it. I probably will call it a paraphrase um, that the great gift still to come from Africa is to give the world a more human face. And, and I think that what he's talking about there is Ubuntu and the idea that, yeah, you can have a giant amount of wealth and a giant amount of, of, of you know, industrialization and all these other things. But unless you recognize the fact that humans require each other, um, you're never uh, going to have, you know, that, that face that the Western world has, has created. It's not really a human face. Uh, and that human face is still to come. And I, I think it's going to come in the context of recognizing the, the type of humanity that you, you spent your time talking about. What would you say then is your, <laughs> is your greatest fear for humanity? Um, and, you know, what kind of things are you doing to help stop that fear coming to pass? I just think that, you know, the times when we dehumanize our enemy are the times when we've done the worst um, evils in the history of the world, right? Um, and one of the remarkable aspects of Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King, uh, the others who, Mandela, who fought against injustice without dehumanizing their enemy, that is tough and it's remarkable. And, you know, we, we talk in this country and around the world now, there is so much reason to feel like the people that are pushing against progress uh, are bad people um, and that their followers are bad people. And, and I just think we have to be careful as we, as we charge ahead and as we, as, we, as we move toward the kind of equality and progress and development uh, and goals that we have as a, as, a, as a world, that we do it in a way that continues to bring people together instead of driving people apart. Um, Bernice King, who's one of my friends and who uh, you know, shares the a, a legacy that's way bigger, I think, even than yours and mine. I mean, anytime anybody uh, talks to me about how hard it must be to be Jimmy Carter's grandson, I think about the fact that you know, Bernice and Martin and Dexter and these folks are carrying a legacy that, of Dr. King's that everybody has claimed as their own. That's tough. But the way she talks about it is there's a difference between defeating injustice and defeating other people. <laughs> and we just have to be careful, I think, that we're not dehumanizing the folks that, that may be believing some horrible stuff. I'm not saying, I mean, you know, white supremacists, like I don't, I don't have any truck with white supremacists. Um, and, you know, there's no reason for those people to be a part of our, of our dialogue, really. But at the end of the day, I've seen white supremacists who change their ways and who have become the kind of people who can speak real truth and provide a lot in a new community. Um, and we just gotta, we gotta keep up with those folks. The, the, the love thy neighbor uh, discussion that, that I know in my faith tradition we have, um, you know, we can list all the people that you love. And the question is, can you love your racist neighbor? That's a tough one. I wish the, I wish your face came through on the podcast right now. <laughs> you're, you're mad at me. <laughs> no, I'm thinking I don't I don't want to answer that right now. It's a hard question. Yeah. It's a hard question. So then with that, what is your greatest hope for humanity? 
Um, you know, I think we've made so much progress, even just in my lifetime. And certainly if you look back at the lifetimes of my grandfather and your grandfather, and you think about the kind of progress that we made, I mean, the number of, of you know, just the, the, the way that people live, the amount of, you know, sort of extreme poverty is so much lower than it used to be, not gone, but, you know, we are really charging forward. And we think sometimes, and as, you know, we, we've seen in the last decade, authoritarianism and, and sort of, the, you know, bad conduct on, on the, the part of a lot of leaders, um, you know, be on the rise and lots of human rights be disrespected. But we are still, I think, all in all moving forward. And I think that we have the ability um, in, in, in this generation to really achieve the kind of sort of global uh, cooperation that we've never had before and the ability to, to, to pay attention to people, um, not just in our own communities, but defining our communities as broadly as we possibly can and understand that, that you know, it, it matters, for example, whether somebody in the innermost parts of China gets sick, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that idea that it matters whether somebody in, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, near Bukavu gets sick. Uh, we, we now understand that as humans, we're fundamentally connected in that way. And I think we're going to have the opportunity to really uh, to really bring together and bring a, a sort of a global mentality toward a huge number of our problems without giving up the things that make us unique and that make us Americans versus South Africans and any other way, any other way. But I think we have a real opportunity right now uh, to bring people together. We just have to just have to use it. Absolutely. Is there a piece of advice that you have received in your life that you you know share with your kids and that you could maybe leave my listeners with? Um, I, you know, I think <laughs> there's a couple of things. But number one, my mm -hmm. grandfather told me to go to the Peace Corps, which was good advice. He told me to keep a journal. Really good advice. Um, but I think sort of fundamentally, it's to seek out places where you think you won't have a human connection because you find it there. And, and you know, you go to a place where everybody looks different than you. You go to a place where people where people think differently than you do, and you will still find a human connection there. And and that idea, you know, my kids, my kids, when we go to church, and you know, this is before COVID, obviously, but when we go to church, we go to Ebenezer Baptist Church, in part just so that they can sit in a room and be the only white people there, um, and still feel comfortable and still feel like they understand and 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 connect and, and be a part of it. And just there are so many different places. Uh, and sometimes the borders where you you think there's, you know, the kitchen door, maybe even you think the people that, that work back behind the, the that part of the restaurant you got no connection with or the people who um, live in a different part of town you have no connection with. But the more opportunities you give yourself to interact with those people who you feel like you have no connection with, the more ways you'll be surprised at how strong those bonds between humans are. Thank you, Jason, for coming on Everyday Ubuntu. I mean, you have no idea how much I appreciate it. Well, I'm honored. I'm so glad you're doing it, and I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to hear the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.